I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. Everyone, we're here today and we're really excited about it um, because we finally get to talk to Paris Marx, who is the host of Tech Won't Save Us, a weekly podcast that critiques the worldview of Silicon Valley. I personally love the podcast and have been listening to it since it started. Um, and Paris's first book is called uh, Road to Nowhere, What Silicon Valley Gets Wrong About the Future of Transportation. And it's going to be out this month by Verso Books. Um, so thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm like so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe for us to start, we could talk just like a bit about you, like your background. So like, how did you get into podcasting? How did you get into the tech space? Um, it, you know, in general, um, what, what led you to, to critiquing tech? Totally. Um, yeah. I, you know, I was, I was always kind of like into technology when I was younger um, like, you know, there were computers around. My mom, like, did computers in university. So that was always a thing that we were, that was there, you know? And, and you know, I, I, like, taught myself to, like, code HTML and CSS and stuff, like, when I was young. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know. I was in the games and, like, all this kind of, I don't know. Technology was around. I guess I'll just put it that way. Um, you know, I was a big Apple fanboy for a while. Uh, and then at some point, uh, you know, I took a more critical twist in looking at technology. Um, and I'm not like 100% sure at what point that would have been, um, rather than just like seeing it as something to be excited about. Um, like it would have been earlier in the 2010s, but I don't know exactly when, like pre-TechLash, um, because I was already thinking about like Uber and things like that in a critical mm -hmm. way before that happened. I started to write about those things like around 2015, 2016, like, you know, in, in kind of an outward way, but I was already kind of reading about those things in a, in a critical fashion and thinking about them in a critical fashion. So, you know, that's just to say that I guess like these ideas then, you know, I started writing about them in around 2016. I started doing a master's in 2017, I believe it was, um, that is in geography and looked at um, transportation, cities, technology, all those kind of topics jumbled together. Um, and that kind of led up to the book as well, right? Because I was kind of developing these arguments and like honing these ideas over the course of a number of years, reading a lot on these topics, um, writing a lot on, you know, Uber and Elon Musk and all of these, all of these companies and people. Um, and then it just seemed natural when I finished the master's to be like, okay, I've done all of this work over so many years on this topic. I may as well turn it into a book because I don't really see there being a book that like does what my book does yet. So why don't I do it? <laughs> so that's fantastic. Yeah. I, I was struck by that. Like it was such an, like you're looking at the car, the automobile and the history of transport and then like relating it to Silicon ideology. And I, I was thinking while I was reading the book, like actually I don't think that there's been that, that kind of a book with this perspective of it. Absolutely. Like, you know, I think I would just say like, you know, if you think about Silicon Valley and like the narrative that they've had for over a decade about like disruption and how like they're disrupting everything and like blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, and then you think back to like, you know, I, I think that they kind of intentionally kind of narrow what we think of technology to be as like digital technology, right? And how are we integrating the internet into more and more things? Because that is what serves the business models of these particular tech companies that are there or that have ascended over the past decade or so. Um, but like, you know, the car very much is a technology, right? And 
at the moment that it emerged, it was incredibly disruptive as well. If we want to use that language in the way that it, you know, changed the way that people get around in the way that it changed the, the physical landscape in order to make room for itself and to kind of reorient how people um, live to accommodate the automobile. Um, and so I think like it's really important to, to recognize that. And I think it provides us with like a lot of historical context then, especially when we think about Silicon Valley's turn to transportation over the past like 15 years and its desire to um, kind of influence and, and insert itself into the transportation system. And so then, you know, I think that historical perspectives perspective allows us to say like, is this really novel, this kind of things that they are presenting to us and suggesting to us, or, you know, can we see actually a long history if we kind of divorce ourselves from the very narrow um, history that Silicon Valley wants us to think about. And I think I would just, just also say, I think like the only other real book, like obviously there have been books that look at Tesla specifically or like Uber specifically, you know, like um, Ed Niedermeyer's Ludacris or um, Super Pump. And, and I think like the only other book that kind of took a bit of like a wider perspective on them in, in this way um, is James Wilt, who's a, a friend of mine here in Canada. He wrote a book called Do Androids Dream of Electric Cars mm -hmm. um, a few mm -hmm. years ago. And that was kind of, looking at electric cars, autonomous vehicles, and ride hailing in the context of um, public transportation in particular. Um, and so it tied some of these ideas together, um, but I didn't feel too bad because I felt like my book like broadened it out even further um, than, than James's did. So I didn't feel like I was completely like uh, treading over territory that he had, <laughs> he had conquered before me, you know? <laughs> That's good. Academia is all building on each other, right? That's, that's, that's yeah. And, and I cite James in the book. So, you know, <laughs> and we're still on friendly terms. Take him out to drinks, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so you begin the book, you know, really interesting with the history of the car in North America and the U.S. specifically. So maybe for the listeners, I found that really fascinating. Um, you could tease out for us. I found it really interesting the way the personal automobile and, you know, uh, uh, created these system, almost systems of dependency and commodification in terms of how it then interacted with roads, with suburbanization, with like consumer dependency on fuel. Um, so maybe you could just trace trace that history um, out for for our listeners. Absolutely, I can give. I can try to give the the short version of <laughs> the five of minute version. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so the automobile really emerges like at the end of the. 19th century. I think that's the right way to call it, 1800s. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so it really emerges then. Uh, there's this competition at the moment, which is really interesting as well. If we think back in like, you know, the, what we're talking about today, this competition between the internal combustion engine, between the electric battery vehicle, and even a steam engine kind of powered vehicle at the time. And it was like, which one is going to win? And for a while, it looked like the electric vehicle was going to win. But then, you know, the internal combustion engine was the one that actually um, um, made it out and, and was the one that became kind of mass, um, mass popularized or whatever you want to say. Um, and so, you know, the automobile emerges into a landscape, a city, an urban landscape that is very much um, not oriented around that kind of a vehicle, right? The streets are very much spaces where a lot of people are or, or a lot of different modes of transportation are kind of interacting at the same time so you have people who are walking people who are on a bicycle people who are on a streetcar people who are in like a horse and carriage kind of situation um, people who are vendors who are set up along the sides of the road selling their stuff and so all of these people are using the same space and because everything moves slowly you know it works in a somewhat uh, workable way. I, I'm sure there were still issues, don't get me wrong. Um, but then the automobile emerges and it is quite different from that because it can go faster than many of these other forms of transportation, right? Um, and so immediately the streets become more dangerous as a result because you have these vehicles that are moving at a higher speed and that kind of disrupt the social norm of the street that exists at the time. And so for a couple decades or for a few decades, there's really a clash between this old way of the street existing and what the automobile needs it to be, which is a space that is basically exclusive for this mode of transportation, right? To get the real benefits of automobility, you can't have all these people in the way because then you're not going faster than everybody else, right? 
and initially the automobile is something that's really for like a luxury kind of group of people, a well-off group of people, um, because it is a more expensive object that people are buying, right? Um, but that begins to change because the automobile companies and the various other um, companies and interests who are associated with it, so suppliers to um, automobility, the oil industry, um, the real estate industry, developers, construction, who would be building new roads and new communities that are oriented around the automobile, um, even later, like labor and other groups who are, are benefiting from all of these projects that are being built. Um, and so there's, especially in like the 1920s and 1930s, there's a real clash between, okay, what is the future of the street going to be? Are we going to limit the automobile so it fits within this existing set of norms? Or is are we going to reorient it for the automobile? And what happens is that all these interests that I've just described really come together and ensure that the, the latter is the one that happens, that the streets get transformed for the automobile, that other people get pushed off the street, it's called jaywalkers, you know, what have you. The idea is that the street is for the car, the sidewalk is for the people, and there are these little spaces that you can use to cross the street as a pedestrian, right? Um, and, you know, obviously that is really driven by the fact that these companies, these interests want to make more money, want to make more profit, and reorienting the street and the way that we live is essential to doing that. Because if the automobile can't go fast, if the automobile is not convenient, then people are not going to buy it. And so in order to make that a reality, the street has to be remade for the automobile so that then it be can become a mass product that all these people are buying. And then, you know, just briefly after World War II is when you really see the kind of larger scale transformation start to take hold, where you have the subsidization of the build out of suburbia, of the construction of the interstate highway system in uh, the United States in particular. Um, and so there are all these massive kind of infrastructural projects and spending and subsidies, the remaking of laws to encourage people and really not even just to encourage people, but kind of to make it what people have to do um, to buy the automobile, to live in a community that is oriented around the automobile and where there are really no alternatives, um, where you have this product that allows all of these different interests to take a cut from your kind of paycheck or whatever you want to say, whether it's buying insurance, whether it's getting maintenance, whether it's buying the fuel to fuel up your automobile, like there are all these, these dependencies that are created as a result of that, even as the industry really skillfully um, frames it and advertises it as freedom, right? <laughs> Yeah, I was really struck by a couple of things in that first chapter. The one, the first is just how, and, and it should be obvious when you think about it, but you do such a good job at, at pulling that out of how the street was a public space and then was just taken over as a private space. Um, in the same way, it really reminded me of a lot of the ways Silicon Valley companies did that in cyberspace, which where it was like commons and all of a sudden, you know, they just claimed it. And now we take it as, as usual. And in particular, how shocked people were over car deaths and automobile deaths, whereas now it's just accidental and it's it's not even news. Yeah, I, I think I think that normalization is so fascinating, right? The way that in the, the 1920s and 30s, because the automobile was more novel, because it was new, because it was not this mass consumer product yet, because we weren't all reliant on it and hadn't had decades of... Um, experience with it, but also like, you know, industry propaganda and advertising to kind of normalize it for us. Um, the fact that it emerged, the fact that all these people were dying, and, and this was not something that we were used to, was very much something to, you know, protest against, to oppose, to try to stop. Um, and then later, that becomes normalized for us as it's just like, you know, we all have to depend on these things. This is just the way it is. This is the way it's been for quite a while. Even, you know, it's, it's kind of shocking because what we've seen in the United States in the past number of years is that um, road deaths are significantly increasing again. Um, it was over 42,000 last year, which is, is a significant increase even from a few years ago where it was closer to like oh, 36. Yeah. yeah. And so it, 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 I think it's just interesting to me that that is happening. And yeah, like people who are interested in transportation and stuff are worried about that. But I feel like it's, it still doesn't break through to like, the broader public, um, that there's this real like inherent danger that we've built our whole kind of 
cities and transportation systems around. Um, and, and that's not even to mention like the environmental effects, the health effects, like all of the other things that, that come out of it. So one of the things that you talk about in the book is about this myth of individualization and cars and it, this liberatory framework. Um, and particularly, you compare it to the history of the bicycle, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, I don't know if you know, but here at Cambridge, right, uh, when you talk about this in the book, but when women um, women were able to bike, it was like newfound freedom. And actually, when uh, Cambridge was, the colleges were forced to admit women uh, they actually burned an effigy of a woman on a bicycle in protest. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, that was like their protest. It was like the symbol of women's like freedom was a woman on the bicycle. So I like wow. that bit of the book. <laughs> so we, we have a couple of fun pictures of that. Um, but anyways, I thought that was really interesting how you're comparing, you know, what technologies do and how they can and enable certain um, like social or uh, more systemic freedoms. But I wonder um, what is the myth, like the myth of individualization that car companies say about why the automobile is, is liberatory and, and why, why isn't it true? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that's th those kind of points are really drawing from work by like Andre Gores and John Yuri as well. Um, really discussing, you know, the, the automobile in a, in a critical light that I think is, is essential. Um, and Andre Gores really says that uh, the automobile kind of um, institutes this kind of bourgeois ideology or, or like way of thinking in all of us to make us feel that, um, you know, we can be these kind of uh, like capitalist subjects and that we can benefit from the system. And really you think about, um, you know, Margaret Thatcher and, and these conservatives who wanted everyone to become a homeowner, because once you had this stake in the system, like you were more likely to vote conservative and to not want to disrupt things, right? Um, and, and even uh, I quoted something from David Gartman, um, who said that, that was one of the goals with the automobile as well, like you get these people to buy this product, and all of a sudden, like they have this kind of stake in the system, and they're less likely to rebel against it or, or push back against it, right? And so, you know, as I was saying, like the, the automobiles promoted as though it is this, this object that provides freedom for the individual, right? You can go anywhere, um, you, can, you can do what you want. It completely, it, you know, if you think of like the car commercials where you see like the people kind of driving through these empty roads, like you can go where, wherever you want, you can do anything, right? And then you think of like reality where everyone's like stuck in traffic <laughs> and it's like, oh my God, how long am I gonna be stuck behind this car, right? Um, like it, it's, it's a false promise because once the automobile goes from being a luxury product to a mass product, all of a sudden the geometry doesn't make sense, right? You have all of these people in cars that are stuck on these congested roads. And no matter how much you expand the roads or build new lanes or what have you, that traffic is still there because when you build new roads, you just encourage more driving. It's called induced demand. Um, you know, don't tell Elon Musk. I said that he, he doesn't like it. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and I think that also relates to the point about dependency as well, right? It's like, no longer can you just like, hop on a bus or a, or a metro uh, train or whatever and go where you need to go. Um, you have this product that is very expensive um, in order to not just to buy, but to maintain, to keep fueled up, all of these things. Um, and so rather than like owning it and having this kind of individual liberty, all of a sudden you have these ties to all these companies that just keep like taking their, their little bit from you. Like if you think about it, um, in Canada, I believe the figure is like ownership of an automobile, the average for a car owner is like around $10,000 or so a year that they'd be spending, obviously, depending on the type of vehicle that you get and whatnot. Um, I can't remember the exact figure for the states. I think it's something like between eight and 11,000 or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, but like, that's a significant chunk of like, people's paychecks, if you think about it, especially lower income people who are then more likely to have a car that is not in good condition and that they'll have to pay like larger amounts of maintenance that will be like, um, that will just show up and they're living paycheck to paycheck and it's really hard to afford. Like, you know, the idea that this provides like freedom and liberation and not like dependency and like 
um, really sticking people in like a cycle of poverty because they have to have this vehicle in order to have the job. But by having the vehicle, all of a sudden there's all these unexpected costs and high costs that come with it. Like it's just a real false promise for most people. Yeah, I find it. So I find it really interesting because I'm from Silicon Valley, which is obviously a huge car culture. We famously don't have any public transport. We have like the Caltrain, which is, it doesn't really go where, where you need to go. So it was like a huge shock for me when I first moved to the UK, actually being in a place that had public transport. Um, but it was also really interesting too, because living in the UK is the first time I wasn't in like a settler colony country and the way that like communities and transport developed is it feels very, and is very different. Um, and one of the things you talk about is how um, the the car leads to suburbanization and actually like shapes communities. Um, so I wonder, maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well as like, so when you think about, I mean, your book is very much in the North American context, but when you're thinking about like the US and Canada, like what is your vision for the future of the car and, and of public transport? Absolutely. Um, like the car does really require suburbs. Like if you think about it, you can't have this dense city where everyone is like, you know, living on top of one another, basically like, you know, you're going to need some, some buildings with a few stories and whatnot, and then have room for all of these cars to also fit within it. Right. Um, and so naturally um, what you have in the United States and Canada, but in many other countries as well is particularly in the post-war period, um, incentives from the federal government and from housing authorities. Um, the FHA, I believe it's called, Federal Housing Administration in the United States, um, the CMHC in Canada, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Agency, basically promote the suburbanization through cheap mortgages, through making those available to people. Um, and also, you know, there's a whole um, way that they kind of rate the quality of mortgages and suburban auto-oriented how homes are more eligible for like good mortgages and good interest rates than um like urban more transit oriented communities and so like it was it was built into the very incentives of like what encouraged this whole build out but that's necessary because the geometry of having all these cars requires you to have more space to spread everything out, right? Like you can't have these dense cities and all these cars. So by pushing cars on people, you also have to push them out to suburbs. And so that's just something that like naturally develops. And unfortunately, we've had all of these decades where that is kind of the reality of um, constructing communities in uh, the United States, but also Canada, I think to a slightly le lesser degree in Canada, but that's not to say that Canada is not like a suburban nation as well. It just wasn't as in into it as much as the United States. We still have a bit better transit, I think, in, in some of our cities and whatnot. That's not to say my city has good transit. It does not. Um, um, but I guess like if we're thinking about what the the solution then is and like what a better kind of future looks like, I would say that if we're trying to solve the problems that are created by the automobile, which is, you know, the um, climate contribution of all of this driving, the health effects of all of us being stuck in our cars and sitting in our cars all the time, which I think we tend to downplay, but are actually really significant, the, the heart issues and the various other um, issues that people can have as a result, the deaths that come from driving and having a transportation system that's so oriented around automobiles. And those deaths are not just from people being hit by cars, but the local air pollution that's created by automobiles also leads to, to premature deaths for quite a number of people. In the United States, it's estimated to be over 50,000 people a year who die prematurely um, from the air pollution from um, tailpipes and automobiles, right? Um, and, and notably, those are things that are not solved by electric cars either. You know, electric cars are still going to hit people. And in many cases, they're heavier than existing uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. And actually, that means that they create more of that um, air pollution. Uh, and so that could actually get even worse, like those, those kind of figures, right? And so the electric vehicle in itself is not inherently a solution to all these problems of automobility. It's a solution immediately to part of the climate impact but I would also argue that we overestimate um, 
how the electric vehicle would actually solve that that climate part of it. And so then if we're thinking about what a better transportation system looks like, what a better communities look like, I think naturally that means stopping the focus on this individualized solution to transportation that thinks everyone needs to be in their own personal automobile. And that is how we solve the transportation problem, but rather to reinvest in these collective solutions for transportation. So making transit systems much, much better so people can actually get out of their cars, making cycling infrastructure much better so people can take their bike or their e-bike instead of having to take a car because we know that in uh, the United States, a lot of trips, a lot of car trips are actually quite short. Um, and so if we could convert more of those into bikes, that would be like a huge change. But I think a key piece there as well, like the book is obviously really focused on transportation, right? And, and what this all means for the transportation system. But we also have to think about the bigger picture. If we change the way that people move, if we improve transit services, build new bike infrastructure, does that mean that people are going to be able to live in those communities and actually benefit from those improvements? And what we see is that because of the um, market-oriented privatized housing system that we have, in many cases, when those um, improvements are made, it causes property prices to rise, and then it pushes out the lower income people that would actually benefit from these things most. Um, and we see in cities like Los Angeles, there have actually been um, organizations that have formed like in black neighborhoods and low income neighborhoods where people have opposed the, the um, construction of bike lanes, adding better transit lines and improving frequency because they fear that that would mean that then the price of their homes would increase and they would then be pushed out to a neighborhood that wouldn't have those things anyway and they would rather stay in their neighborhood and so you know if yes we need to solve the transportation problem but that is also connected to so many other problems that need to be dealt with as well that require investments in public housing social housing all these other things um, community infrastructure community spaces you know to really um, change the city in a broader way than just the way that we get around you sort of preempted my next question there about the, the cars and the climate crisis. So obviously Tesla features quite a bit in, in the book. Um, I actually think you weren't hard enough on Elon Musk. He comes off <laughs> too easily in this book. <laughs> um, but obviously, right, I, I think Tesla becomes a flashpoint for, you know, I've written about Elon Musk, you've written about Elon Musk. Um the, the company is sort of a flashpoint in the way that Elon Musk has been able to like capitalize essentially on like the politicization and like state funding of, of green enterprises. Um, so I wonder, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, your argument in the book about like why, I mean, I guess the question is, do you think Tesla is a green company in a sense? Um, and if, if not, why? Um, and then the second question is, right, if we really, truly want to address the climate crisis, can cars be part of that future at all? First question, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't think Tesla is a green company. Um, you know, it, it's really interesting to see Elon Musk kind of increasingly double down on this, like, assertion, right, as um, the evidence to the contrary increasingly um, you know, is, is made public, emerges, uh, is understood by people, I guess. Like there was this uh, tweet he had, I don't know, a couple months ago, I guess it was, um, where apparently he was texting with Bill Gates and um, Bill Gates apparently has a short position in Tesla. Uh, and so Elon Musk like got mad at him and said that, uh, you know, Tesla is the company that has done the most to like solve climate change in the world or something like that. And like, <laughs> It's just the most ridiculous claim. Um, so, you know, Tesla is is really founded on that idea that electric cars are what is going to solve transportation contribution to climate change. And that idea does really come out of like a kind of end of the first decades of the 2000s, like early 2010s kind of uh, liberal environmentalism that was really ascendant in that period you know, uh, Al Gore's The Inconvenient Truth comes out around that period. Uh, a, a, a documentary film called Who Killed the Electric Car comes out around that period. And, you know, the real arguments are that in order to solve climate change, we need to take these individual personal solutions, you know, changing our light bulbs and all these things that people will be familiar with. And one of those is to buy an electric car, right? And, and Tesla is really the piece of that. 
you know, Tesla's argument is that it's going to start with this luxury car. And then that luxury car is going to give it the money to create ever cheaper cars until it gets to the model three, which is going to be like, it's kind of mass affordable car. The model three, I guess it should be noted now costs something like, um, high 40,000s, low 50,000s, just as a starter, most people would be paying more than that. And so, you know, I would say on the environmental piece, you know, the vehicle is a status symbol. It's a luxury car. A lot of people who own them um, don't use them as their primary vehicles, but as one vehicle in a fleet of vehicles that they use or of a number of vehicles. Um, and so one of the issues then, especially with these higher valued electric cars that are treated more as luxury cars by the people who buy them is that you're not actually replacing all of the miles driven or kilometers driven of your internal combustion engine car. You're, you know, it's more complementary to that. And so you're not getting the environmental benefit because with an, with an electric car, the production emissions are much higher than an internal combustion engine vehicle. And so the savings, the, the environmental benefit comes from driving it and driving it a lot and having it stay on the road for a really long time, right? And so then if you are a wealthy person who buys one of these electric cars like a Tesla and then doesn't drive it all the time, but just has it as like a secondary vehicle, then it's not guaranteed that you're actually going to get the environmental benefit of it uh, in the way that, you know, if it was someone's only car and that's the one that they were using all the time, right? And, and this is not to say that electric cars are not better than internal combustion engine vehicles. Often they can be if they're actually used as a primary vehicle. Um, it's just that what we've had so far is the people who are able to buy electric cars are people with a lot of money who don't use them as their primary car. And that's proven to be an issue. Um, just to, to kind of quickly note a few things I would say about Tesla. Um, it's, it's quality of vehicles is very poor. It's quality control. And so what people have found is that they need to be constantly repaired. Um, replacements need to happen. They don't last as long as they should or that you should be able to expect from a vehicle because let's, let's admit they are a luxury car. Um, you know, Elon Musk or, or the company has admitted that it used these touchscreens in the car that were not actually meant to last a long time, three to five years maximum, which is not the actual you know, length that a car usually stays on the road. And so that's a big issue if you're thinking about the um, climate impact of a vehicle. If it's not actually going to stay on the, on the road for a long time, you're going to need to replace your vehicle more often, which is a problem, especially when your vehicle is one that has a lot of production emissions um, and less emissions from the actual driving of the vehicle itself. Um, Tesla, it's per vehicle emissions has been rising in recent years. So the production emissions, the initial emissions of the vehicle that get displaced from driving it, I guess, is higher when it starts off. And so you need to drive it more to get the real environmental benefit from it. Um, but, you know, there's another piece of this as well, right? When you think of Elon Musk and the project that he's pushing, okay? Electric cars, okay, that, that's all well and good. I think it's going to be part of the solution to the transportation problem that we face. Do I think Teslas and, and luxury cars like this are the solution to that? Not so convinced. I think more of like a mass market electric car that's like a smaller car would be much better for that than these luxury vehicles and a Cybertruck and, and what have you. Um, but Elon Musk in pushing this vision that electric cars are the way that we solve the transportation emissions um, has also been very much opposing public transit and using that as a way to get people out of cars. He's said that public transit um, is unsafe, inconvenient, that you could be on a bus or a subway and there could be a serial killer next to you. And so you shouldn't want to be on transit. Um, and that was in pushing his idea for the boring company, which is basically tunnels under a city for Tesla's to drive in, um, which you know is apparently his solution to traffic, which is not a realistic solution. Um, and in, uh, the biography of Elon Musk that was written by Ashley Vance, I believe it was published in 2015 around that period. Um, he actually admits to Ashley Vance that the whole idea for the Hyperloop, which was this kind of really fast um, train-like uh, transportation system that was supposed to run between San Francisco and LA, was actually designed to stop the California high-speed rail line from being built, or at least to, to disrupt it, right? Um, 
And so, and so that's a real issue if you have this really powerful person pushing electric cars and then trying to stifle the alternatives that would get people out of cars, the, the alternatives that are actually more environmentally friendly that would actually be better for people in our cities if they were expanded on and built on. Just like a funny story on the Boring Company that I think your listeners would like get a kick out of. So there, there are these cities around the United States that are trying to like, you know, they want the halo effect of like being associated with Elon Musk, right? Um, I, I don't, well, no, maybe that is still a popular thing because it's increasingly like Republicans who are trying to get that halo effect and Elon Musk has gone right. Um, but he went to, I believe it's Fort Lauderdale in Florida. And what they were looking for was the boring company to drill a new tunnel for its train to go under this river um, because the bridge that was over the river was like really old and was, you know, in danger, basically. And so they needed a tunnel because they didn't want to build a new bridge or something like that. Um, and they thought the boring company could do it cheap. And so they went to the boring company. They were like, we need this tunnel for uh, this train. And once they finally signed the agreement with the boring company and Elon Musk, they were not getting a tunnel for a train under a river. They were instead getting a tunnel to the beach for Tesla's. I was like, what? <laughs> Incredible. I'm consistently baffled, but also impressed by Elon Musk, but also like Peter Thiel of these guys. And like Elon Musk in particular is able to, to, to capture hype. I mean, Tesla is such an overvalued company for what its actual profits and production is. And it's getting so much money from the government. And so I wonder, you, you talk a little bit about Peter Thiel and like uh, the these tech guys' ideology. So I wonder for you, like one, like what do you think explains Musk's ability to like, like basically hype the government essentially and the state um, and get all these funds and subsidies and tax breaks. Um, and then do you think, I mean, you've sort of touched on the wider Silicon Valley ideology, but do you think there is an ide like an ideological thing underpinning this, or is it just like fully self-interest, fully hypocrisy to just like, you know, say public transport is useless, go buy my car, and in the same breath be taking money from from the government to, to subsidize these cars? I would I would say to start with, you know, the way that people like Teal and Musk kind of benefit from all of these public subsidies, um, but are able to kind of turn it in a way that it seems like that is not what's happening or like that's not the the discussion. I, I just think it's interesting like to think about the history of Silicon Valley itself, right? Silicon Valley itself was really born of government subsidy in World War II and the Cold War to ensure that the United States can defeat the Nazis, like remain in front of it technologically, uh, and then kind of remain ahead of the Soviet Union um, technologically as well, right? To, to still be a technological superpower. Um, this, this history, I would argue, gets kind of hidden or abstracted in the narrative that we get around Silicon Valley because it doesn't work for what they want to sell us, right? And the narrative that we have about Silicon Valley really comes out of like the 1980s when you've already had this kind of shift in because at the moment when all of this public funding was going into the valley and and really that continued and still does continue but like this early period in say the 40s through the, like the 60s silicon valley was this really conservative place right and then you start to have the counterculture and these more libertarian ideas around um smaller technologies personal technologies and like the individual freedom that can come out of that um, really start to emerge through the counterculture into the 70s. Um, Stuart Brand is a real big proponent of that, uh, the Whole Earth Catalog. And then Steve Jobs really cites that as part of the ethos that drives him at Apple and producing these personal computers that can then um, empower the individual in the way that the mainframe computers empowered like the corporate hierarchies and all of these sorts of things, right? And so there's a real kind of ideology at play there around technology, and that gets fused with Reagan neoliberalism um, in the 1980s. Reagan, of course, is also close to the tech industry, is also happy to kind of promote this ideology uh, very much, you know, technology can empower the individual 
And it also comes out of this kind of entrepreneurial spirit of these people creating companies, you know, this, these ideas that are still really familiar to us today that really drove kind of the early um, internet boom, particularly the ideology around all the startups that were that were happening in the early 2010s and all those sorts of things, you know, those ideas were really resurgent. And even as um, Ronald Reagan was slashing budgets to, you know, across the government, it was increasing research budgets and actually further subsidizing um, Silicon Valley in the semiconductor industry because it faced a challenge from Japan in that moment. Uh, which I think is also a, an interesting like historical moment to look back at now as the U.S. tech industry faces this challenge from China and, and how it's responding to those things. But, you know, I'll, I'll put that <laughs> to the side. Um, and so to get back to your point around uh, Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, like I, I think they very much fit within this longer history of the tech industry and, and these, you know, influential people in the tech industry really being dependent on public funds to make themselves and for their, their companies to operate. SpaceX, my God, is highly dependent on NASA, mm -hmm. on the Defense Department, on uh, the FTC as well. It's received um, subsidies from for the Starlink system. And then Peter Thiel, my God, like <laughs> Pay PayPal was dependent on the banking system, which is obviously um, regulated and made possible by the US government. But then Palantir, like its whole its whole thing is to get government contracts and has received so many of them. Like it was already working with like defense departments and things like that, but through the pandemic has really um, integrated itself in the health systems and all these sorts of things as well. I believe recently just signed a contract with the NHS in the UK. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, th this is incredibly worrying to someone like me at least. Um, so these people are able to kind of, um, style themselves as entrepreneurs, as these people who are like self-made, who are doing these things all on their own. So I would say then, like, if we're thinking about, you know, the ideology of Silicon Valley, as we've been talking about, you know, it, it kind of builds over the course of the 20th century from this kind of conservative ideology to this more um, libertarian kind of neoliberal oriented kind of ideology. And so if we're thinking about what they're doing today, you know, I think there's an element of all of it. Like, I think that they are certainly driven by these like kind of broader capitalist impulses for what they have to do, right? Like they are really serving the capitalist system um, and the technologies that they are trying to integrate into our lives are very much in service of that, right? Elon Musk in pushing uh, electric cars is very much kind of maintaining the system of, auto of automobility. Um, and at the same time, is potentially allowing this like increase in accumulation because if that is what actually happens we'll all have to replace our vehicles much sooner and there will be this whole like new kind of automotive economy that will be created in pushing spacex he's privatizing this public infrastructure of rocket launches and you know satellites and all these sorts of things and turning that into a private business um, for accumulation, you know, he'll sell it as though he's taking us to Mars and blah, blah, blah. Um, but really it is the privatization of this infrastructure. One of the things I wanted to tease out though, to go back to that relationship between like these companies and the state, the other thing that I was really struck by in your book is just like how much they break the law or just like lie or deceive the government. So one of the things I was really tickled by was how Uber was using that special interface for when law enforcement agents tried to use the app to like hide the ways that it wasn't complying with the law um, but also you talk about self-driving cars and how you know these companies were saying oh yeah yeah, yeah don't worry we'll, we'll develop the self-driving cars really really soon or they'll be way more safe and then having to you know update their filings and now I think I forget if it was Uber or Tesla um, one of them basically saying like most recently admitting like no there probably won't be self-driving cars um so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think it presents a serious problem, right? When we look at the state's kind of approach to these tech companies and what they've been trying to do over the past decade or so and how they've been let off with so many things because they have this like aesthetic of tech and there's the promise that they are like the future of the economy and, you know, are going to change how how we all live. And so I don't know, they need to be given a pass on all of this like kind of wrongdoing that they've been up to. I think it does show how um, 
the state and like the kind of neoliberal city has been really unable to rein these things in or to ensure that these companies and these services work in the public interest. And I think that's a serious problem. Like it, it, I think it says a lot about like state capacity and like what has happened to state capacity over the past number of decades that there really hasn't been a willingness to rein this stuff in and just to allow it to continue. And like, you know, we continue to see that today with crypto. It's like, you know, the SEC, Gary Gensler says that something needs to be done about um, crypto doesn't really do anything. And it seems like we're just going to wait for it all to crash and people lose a lot of money. And then maybe they'll go in and like clean a few things up and make a few, like, I don't know, have a few cases or whatnot. Right. But really like, it's okay. You can just do whatever you want for the moment, um, which is a serious problem. And so, you know, as you're saying with Uber, Uber's real push is the deregulation of the taxi industry. Um, and, and it's just allowed to do that because it claims that it's a tech company, it's not a taxi company. And so it should be treated differently as a result, even though it offers basically the same service. It's just deregulating it and making you press a button in an app instead of picking up your phone and calling a dispatcher. Like it's really not so different. And in the book, I describe how like, you know, there was the institution of these taxi regulations. And then over time, they were kind of chipped away at taxis lost their unionization. Um, and there were other things that were kind of slowly rolled back over time, but they still had the regulation of the fare. Um, so, you know, the, the price of the fare was set and the regulation of the number of cabs that were on the street at one time. And so that allowed them to have at least some like dependability of the amount of money that they would get because the um, number of, or because the market would not be flooded with a ton of cabs just like coming in and offering services. And also um, other cabs couldn't undercut you for providing a certain service or, or whatnot. And then Uber comes in and it breaks these things, right? It shifts the fare as much as it wants and says that it doesn't, it shouldn't be covered by these taxi regulations that regulate the fare. And also it floods the, the market with new cabs effectively, even though it says they're, they're not cabs. And the cities and the states don't effectively step in and say, no, like you are a taxi company, you should be under taxi rules. It says, okay, well, now you are a transportation network company. And so we're going to treat you differently than a taxi company. Let all these taxi drivers kind of lose their shirts and, and you know, lose their dependable incomes, lose their livelihoods. Um, Meanwhile, the new drivers who are driving for these Uber and Lyft, these ride hailing companies, um, initially, yeah, they do make a bit of money because Uber and Lyft are losing so much money and, and incentivizing it so much to make it look really good. But very quickly that gets rolled back and, and they're not making very much money either. And so the real goal of Uber is to deregulate the taxi industry so that the company has the power to set the standards rather than the government setting any real serious regulations on that sector that protect the drivers, ensure that they can make a decent living, but also that protect the public in ensuring that, you know, they're not going to cause all this traffic on the street, create more emissions, um, create more congestion, all of these other things that have come of Uber that were certainly not promised in the beginning when it was just going to make it easy for you to get a cheap cab. Um, and the other piece of this, of course, is that Uber, by claiming it's a technology company and not a taxi company, also was able to get an exemption from the Americans with Disabilities Act, and so didn't need to provide wheelchair service in the way that a taxi company does, even though it will love to tell you um, about how committed it is to, you know, ensuring it serves everybody and blah, 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 right? It's all a big lie. Um, and then on the self-driving piece, like there's, a again, I think a serious issue there Finally, I think the regulators in the United States are starting to come around to looking at um, regulating self-driving vehicles. But for a long time, they were kind of allowed free reign. And some states like California put in like very minimal reporting requirements on these companies. But then it was really easy for them then to say, oh, we'll just move to a different state that doesn't do that, like what Uber did when it moved all of its vehicles from California to Arizona, 
Um, and then one of its vehicles killed a woman in 2018. And that finally ended kind of the exuberance of a, a particular period of the development of self-driving technologies when we were constantly told year after year that they were only a few years away and then everyone would be in self-driving cars and blah, 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 right? Um, and, and that was just like a, a pure lie. It was a pure fabrication. Maybe we could say it was like over-optimistic, but I would say it was a lie. It was not true. Um, but then that influenced a lot of thinking around transportation. You had in a number of cities in the United States, um, right-wing groups funded by the Koch brothers using the prospect of self-driving cars in order to defeat um, ba ballot measures that would have improved public transportation. Because they said, well, in a few years, this is going to be obsolete anyway, because everyone's going to be in their little pod self-driving car. We're not going to need a bus or a tram line or whatever it is that they were investing in, right? You know, I, I think it presented a real danger on the streets, especially as we've seen these Tesla vehicles. Um, you know, those have received the most scrutiny recently um, because there are so many of them on the streets because, you know, people can just buy a Tesla car and get access to the system if they pay an extra amount of money, uh, however many thousands of dollars Elon Musk charges for it now. Um, and, you know, you can really use it in a really irresponsible way because it's sold to people, I would say, in a very misleading fashion that makes them believe it can do things that it can't. And so I would say one silver lining is it does seem like after all of this time, the regulators are finally waking up to do something about it, to start looking at it. Um, what is actually going to come of that remains to be seen. But I think in general, you know, what our takeaway should be from the past 10 or 15 years is that we really need to look a lot more critically at these technologies that Silicon Valley, that these tech companies are presenting to us, instead of just believing the early promises that they make about, you know, kind of the broad social benefit that is going to be created by whatever thing they're trying to sell us. Because I would argue that time and time again, early on, we get these really positive promises about what they're going to deliver. And then when we actually assess things five or seven years down the line, we see that many of those promises were not fulfilled. And if they were fulfilled, it was only for like, you know, uh, the, the general beneficiaries of these things are like young college educated men who are earning above average incomes living in urban areas, basically your average tech worker, um, are the people who are benefiting from this because they're the ones who are coming up with it. Um, and then for everyone else, you get a whole range of problems, whether it's, you know, the surveillance and, and all the stuff that has come of Facebook. They were recently, they recently settled a housing discrimination charge because they were allowing um, discrimination against black and people of color on their ad system. That's, and obviously that's just one small piece of the whole Facebook mm -hmm. thing, you know, Uber promising all this great stuff and then making traffic work worse in cities, making conditions works for drivers. Now we're seeing that that riders on the service are like, wait, it's more expensive than like it used to be. It's even more expensive than a taxi cab. Um, and plus there are studies that find that the emissions are even higher from Uber than if people were just driving their own cars, because there's all of this circling that the drivers have to do waiting for a fare. Um, and so, you know, I could go on with the number of promises that are made that were not fulfilled and the, the issues that came of it. But I think that we really need to be more critical of what's coming out of Silicon Valley and stop kind of buying this myth that just because a new technology is presented to us, it means like social progress or things are going to get better. That's not at all guaranteed. You, you had mentioned it before, but one of the things I really appreciated was like your emphasis on accessibility. So you kind of mentioned it with Uber. So I wonder if maybe you could talk like a little bit about like the accessibility question. I mean, how that relates to the Silicon Valley mindset of like, again, you, you sort of mentioned it about like who they're developing for and this like legitimacy question of like who this is impacting and who they're developing for. I think, it, I think it's a big problem, obviously. Um, I would say, you know, it comes back to things that we have been talking about, right? How there are particular people who make these things and they have particular ideas about how people use the city in different parts of the city. You know, you mentioned how um, Silicon Valley has this really terrible car culture, right? Um, and what I find is that a number of these people who are working on these transportation solutions tend to think that people don't walk or, you know, <laughs> don't, don't tend to like walking. I don't know. They think people don't use sidewalks apparently. Um, and that means that for some of these solutions, they have no problem 
trying to take over the sidewalk and disregarding whoever might be using them. You know, just, I guess, briefly on accessibility, you know, I'll just reiterate that Uber and Lyft got a carve out to the Americans with Disabilities Act so that they don't actually need to provide that kind of service, even though a taxi company, other, other transportation services would. But I think one of the problems that you mentioned with, with Bird, um, which is, you know, these dockless scooter companies that kind of emerged uh, five or six years ago in particular, that, you know, initially there were Chinese companies that did this, and then there were um, North American and European companies that, that copied them and did a similar sort of thing. And so they rolled out all of these scooters and bikes and kind of dumped them on the sidewalks. And all of a sudden it was like, you know, some residents were annoyed that they were there because legitimately they would get in the way. But for some of those people, they would feasibly be able to walk around them, even though it was an inconvenience, right? But then there are other people, people in wheelchairs, people who have um, seeing eye dogs, I think that's the right term for them. Um, you know, to help them get around, that creates a barrier that wasn't there before, and that they might not be able to to cross or get by. Um, and so there's this real disregard for the type of people who might be using these infrastructures, but are not considered by people who are developing these transportation ideas, these people in Silicon Valley. One of the heartful things in San Francisco when these rolled out was that there was a big backlash, right? And that the, the city government took it seriously, at least, you know, to a certain degree and for a while, um, whereas in other cities, that was really not the case. And, you know, it, it really depends on the place, but obviously in some cities, people are, or lawmakers or officials are really, um, really want to be seen as pro-technology and accepting technology and will look past these potential issues because one of them is bird, you know, you put, the scooter on the sidewalk, it blocks the sidewalk, maybe it falls over. This is a whole big problem. But then the other piece of this is, and these have been particularly, you know, pushed during the pandemic is these delivery robots that also use the sidewalk to, to get around. And these are also a serious problem. You know, in, in the book, I talk about two examples, one where um, there's this woman who's going across the street in a wheelchair, and she gets to the other side. And there's one of these delivery robots stuck at the corner and she can't actually get up onto the sidewalk, even as the light changes and stars are and cars are starting to go. And she needs to like go around to the other side in order to get up on the sidewalk, right? And an interesting thing there, of course, is these businesses using these delivery robots are only possible because the um, Americans with Disabilities Act made cities put in these like sloped things on the sidewalk over the past number of decades without which these delivery robots would not be possible and now they're making it more difficult for the actual people that those like the little slopes on the side would be would be meant for right to allow them to get up and down um from the sidewalk to the to the street and whatnot when crossing the road um and so yeah i i think it just points back to like i said a lot of these services benefit a particular type of person. And that type of person tends to be your average tech worker. And there's not a desire to think beyond that and how it's going to affect other people, even when they're more than happy to use those people in their marketing and in their claims about um, the services and who they're going to benefit. A final example, Uber's flying car service that has now been shuttered and sold off because they finally admitted it was not really going to realistically happen in the way that they promised. Um, you know, as I said, Uber got this carve out from the Americans with Disabilities Act, didn't actually need to serve people in wheelchairs in the way that other transportation companies would, but they sold this idea of the flying car service. And they said that it would be like super affordable, like an Uber, uh, like a regular Uber ride, which was like complete bullshit, just not true at all. Like it would have been very expensive. And even in their kind of test service that they ran in Manhattan, it was like a few hundred bucks just to get to the airport. Like it was, it was not cheap. Uh, and that was highly subsidized even then. But in their pitch, they said that this was a service that was going to be for um, underserved communities. And in particular, people in wheelchairs were going to be able to benefit from this. And it was just so like, like it just turned your guts to hear them say that in knowing that they got this carve out from the Americans with Disabilities Act have been um, 
ensuring that their ride hailing service didn't properly serve these people and then using them in their promotion for this new bullshit service that they were putting out there. It just shows like the shamelessness of the companies and, and their approach to these things. Yeah, that, that's absolutely outrageous. I didn't know about that. So uh, one of my professors once told me, I don't know if you know, Nigel Farage is this UK figure. I'm sure. Sadly, you yes, I've heard of him. Yes. Um, <laughs> But some, somebody said, uh, what, so one of my professors here said, you know, um, if you want to know what then the t- Tory talking parts are the are going to be over the next years, just listen to what Nigel Farage is saying now. And actually his most recent crusade is against bike lanes. Um, and so people have said that, you know, this is bike lanes and, and transport is going to be the like NIMBY sticking point around uh, like wider climate action. Um, and so in the book, you, you do talk and, and critique and call out like different media uh, sources for how they're framing and how they're covering cars and transport. So I wonder like for you, when you're, when you're thinking more about like um, collective action and, and how we push for change, um, how do you, how do you hope that like the media and, and activists or, or other interested people like envision that? Yeah, it's, it's, Difficult, right? Um, I would just note that in the United States, there's a similar thing where a lot of right wing media is very much, um, you know, one of their issues will be to push back against transit, to push back against um, bike lanes, to push back even against electric cars, um, and to, you know, promote this idea that a real kind of American uh, will have like a big truck or an SUV or, or something like that, powered by gas, of course. Because uh, you know they're they're connected with the oil industry. Um, I actually wrote a piece uh, last year sometime for Business Insider about it was something about electric cars, and uh, I can't remember exactly what the title was. But Fox News picked it up. It was on like the Tucker Carlson, and they like you know Amazing. lost yeah they like lost their mind. Tucker wasn't hosting that night. It was it was someone else. But they like lost their minds about the fact that um, you know I was suggesting that like cars would would have to go like even electric cars weren't enough or something like that um and then they were they were like uh this like washington dc liberal who's like in with the biden administration and beat Buttigieg. i was like what i hate those guys i'm not based in dc like i'm canadian you know it doesn't matter though because it's just for their talking you can prove anything with facts i mean yeah (laughs) but just to illustrate it's not just in the uk like this is very much a thing in north america as well uh, a, a friend of mine wrote a piece in Canada about how we needed to ban pickup trucks and like the media in Canada picked it up as well and like went crazy. So this is very much something that is becoming like a right wing, you know, I don't want to, I don't love to say it, but like culture war kind of issue, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that you might want to take away their like big honking vehicles powered by gas is becoming a real issue. Um, and that's a problem because if we do think about the media, um, it has traditionally had a pretty close relationship with the automotive industry because the automotive industry is a huge advertiser. They buy a lot of ad space, especially um, as newspapers have found their ad revenues eroded over the past decade or so with digital advertising, Google, Facebook, all these things. Um, the auto industry is still very reliable. A lot of newspapers will still have an auto section, like a whole section of the newspaper dedicated to cars and stuff. Um and yeah, it, it, it obviously presents a challenge because at the same time, uh, we have governments that want to push the idea that the solution uh, to climate change from a transport perspective are electric vehicles and very much going all in on electric vehicles, even big electric trucks and SUVs, which would have like massive batteries um, because that works for um, the, the economy, right? It creates manufacturing jobs, which are really highly valued from a political perspective. You know, if you can say, oh, look, we're creating all these manufacturing jobs, building these cars and trucks, you know, that plays well to an electorate. Um, if we're thinking about countries like Canada and the US, there's also the resource piece of it. So there's all the extraction uh, in Canada where I am. 75% of mining companies globally are headquartered in Canada. And so a green transition that's very um, resource intensive works very well for those kind of interests. And so I think that there are a lot of um, barriers to thinking about what a better transportation system is going to be. 
um, and to, to actually realizing that, to making that a reality and to actually pushing people in power, um, you know, to, to take the actions that are actually going to realize that. Because one of the things that I say in the book that I think is really important is that by looking back at the, the institution of automobility and the, the transformation of cities for the automobile and our transportation systems, we can see what a strong role that the state played in making that possible. It required billions and billions, if not trillions of dollars of investment to reorient the way that we lived around the automobile towards suburbs and, and what have you. And if we're thinking about a really large scale transformation to how we live, that is going to move us away from the automobile, improve our communities, actually seriously address the housing crisis, that is going to require state action and not just waiting for the private market to, to shift, right? It's kind of the underlying foundations, the structures that, that make all that possible that are going to have to change and that requires the state. And so really, if we think about what is going to be necessary to like make that change, it's going to require like action and, and organizing to ensure that we can push them to take the actions that we actually need to not only address the climate crisis, but to make life better for everybody. Mm -hmm.